do all of your research up front. Like, you know, do, I mean, you can't do all your research up front. You're always learning new things every single day, but like do your homework, you know, don't, no ideas had in a vacuum. You know, if you have an idea, make sure you look at the lay of the land, look at all the competition that exists out there, see, you know, make a spreadsheet even, or just, you know, a nice, we'll get out your whiteboard and look at how all the ways in which your business is, is different from their businesses. And then use those, that difference um, at the end to really like, you know, shine, you know, or mm. design a marketing strategy around or design, you know, help evolve or iterate your product to maybe add more differentiators or double down on those differences. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the CEO and founder of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat. Now today we have another great guest on the podcast. Ian Abbott and uh, Ian uh, has uh, kind of gone in or throughout his career or life has kind of gone back and forth between business and academics um, and originally starting out in high school, um, got in or got into high school, had some friends uh, uh, that wanted to start a business with. It was kind of Quora, but before uh, Quora was a thing and grew to, I think, 50,000 users, merged with another retailer, finished high school after getting kicked out of high school, I think, a few times. And he'll tell us a little bit about that. And then uh, went to Dartmouth, uh, got uh, some or studied physics as well as math, um, did a startup with some uh, friends for a payment platform with marijuana, which was an interesting one, until the DOJ told him it probably wasn't a good idea. Went back to school, worked on some various startups startups, including, I think, Kettlebell, uh, Kettlebell business, coffee business, and other ones, um, as well as puttering through a few different jobs before kind of uh, diving into what he's doing now today with ARC, and he'll uh, provide a bit more detail on that as well. So with that much as an uh, introduction, welcome on the podcast, Ian. Hey, how are you, man? Oh, I'm doing great and excited to have you on. So I just gave kind of the quick, uh, quick run through to a much longer journey. So take us a little bit uh, back in time, back to high school and kind of how things all started for you. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wasn't back in high school. I wasn't that into academics. I always wanted to, you know, start a business. Um, you know, I, you know, so I did various, you know, things and, you know, in early high school, various, tried, tried various things, um, you know, some business out in Colorado, um, you know, mainly very, very small scale stuff. Um, tried to work with my dad who, you know, is uh, working on like the tap system, uh, tried to develop some like a shoot off of that. Um, and then kind of, you know, uh, kind of found my way to like a more the tech side of things. I took more of an interest in computers. Um, uh, you know, I, I ended up uh, developing like a small software company that was called a uh, Habby. Um, you know, I was very young at the time. It was like started when I was like 15. Um, yeah, like you said, we ended up growing it to like a very small user base. Um, and then it was a more fashion, I guess the, the discussions ended up, uh, that ended up happening on the platform more kind of fashion forward, just for whatever reason, it wasn't intended, just kind of happened that way. Um, so there was a retailer in Texas, um, this guy launching something called the Edition Group or Edition Collective that had uh, retail stores um, and had some sales online and wanted to build out like a blog, uh, blog component. So essentially he looked, liked our community and wanted to kind of build off it and we merged with him. And then he ended up selling uh, the company uh, down the road a few years to a retailer called Q Retailers. And that was that story. Um, and, you know, that was fun. Uh, I know that wasn't like, you know, like, you know, the retirement plan really. So I still did go to college, uh, you know, so I went to college, 
um, for like oh, a little bit. Diamond, or just yeah. before that. So, I mean, because that's, I, I would say that's a pretty good accomplishment. Anything that has a user base, 50,000 users isn't nothing or anything to sneeze at. I think it's cool that you guys are able to build that, especially in high school. So just diving into that a bit, how did you guys come up with the idea? How did you grow the user base? And then what made you decide to merge? Um, well, well, okay. Yeah. So first, uh, so we sort of like to, to backtrack a little bit. Um, you know, I, I, we came up with an idea for more of like, you know, uh, general, like more utility, or sorry, less general, more specific utility-based social networks. So that's what we were kind of like focused and looking at. And then we didn't really, um, it was kind of right pre-Cora or right around Cora. We didn't really heard of it yet, or it was like right around the same time. Um, and so we kind of is that, was that same idea, um, you know? Uh, so it was like, you know, the idea was Habity and it was for like a Q&A kind of social network um, with maybe like a little bit more heavy on the social component than they were on the topic component. Um, we were more like a 50-50 weight. Um, mm-hmm. And that was kind of, you know, that that's mainly the only differentiator. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so then we we kind of, you know, from an interest in social networks to more like utility-based social networks, you know, the idea kind of emerged from that. Um, it was mainly me in the beginning. Um, and then I actually ended up working with some like, well, I got a space in like a WeWork Labs downtown. Um, I actually like got the office next to that guy who did Fire Festival, Billy McFarlane. He had some company. You know, I don't know if you've heard of that whole thing, which is hilarious where they threw this uh, concert, you know, and it mm. ended up in tents and stuff. It's a whole different story. But anyway, uh, so I had a space that we worked there and I ended up meeting like a lot of different people there who were a lot older, um, who ended up helping with the business, um, you know, including like uh, later on our kind of co-CEO. We had this guy named Brendan Mangus, who's a great guy. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, the, the business kind of and then it grew to a couple more people. Um, we had a, a CTO who's remote. Uh, named Alex and then I you know my friends like you know also like Niall came and helped out work there for a bit um and but yeah that that was mainly kind of a solo uh, journey at the beginning um in my first kind of foray into entrepreneurship um and you know um basically as as we ended up getting traction the team scaled to like you know a solid like four people five Mm. people and then um we ended up I was actually down in a meeting for Texas to do fundraising for it um to try to take it to kind of the next level um, and then in that meeting, I ended up meeting with this guy who, or an investor who wanted me to introduce to a friend who was an entrepreneur who was going to give advice. And that was the mm-hmm. fashion guy. And he ended up taking an interest in the businesses, maybe merging them for, um, for like, you know, his, uh, for his platform. And at that time, like, you know, the business kind of like, you know, we had strong growth at the beginning. It was kind of tapering off. We realized Cora was growing really, really fast. You know, there's a bunch of other factors like, you know, you know, pressure to go to college and things like that. So it was essentially when Matt like made his offer, it was like, okay, that, that just sounded uh, good to me, essentially at the time, um, mm. you know. Yeah. Hey, any, any business you can start in high school and get any sort of an offer or merger or anything of that, I would certainly can't put that in the wind column. So that's pretty cool. So, so now you get done with high school, you kind of, you know, you do that kind of as a, a, a fun business that you do with some of your friends, build it up, get the user base, sell it off. Um, when you go to college and, you know, you studied, uh, you know, physics and uh, I think it was uh, math and physics and then um, coming out or coming out of college, how did that kind of, what did you do after college or was it, was a, a payments platform for marijuana during college or after college? I can't remember when you met, which way you mentioned. Yeah, that was during college. So yeah, I was there for, for college for essentially my freshman year and the first bit of my sophomore year. And then I left to go, you know, with my friend, Victor Stewart. Uh, we left to go start that uh, that that platform, which we were calling Spark and Lightning. Um, and so, yeah, I, I did that after maybe my first term, my first sophomore term there. Mm. 
So now walk us through, because I think that was, you know, you say, no, it'd be, you know, you found out about a, a, a payment issue or, you know, how to marijuana industry, especially where it wasn't legal in the time and still isn't, or, and at least on the federal yeah, level. Not federal fed, level. Yeah, not federally legal. Yeah. Federally it was just legal. So it was exactly a difficulty well. on the payments platform to be able to manage money. So how did you guys get into that? And then how did you get the DOJ involved where they said, eh, maybe not a good idea? Yeah, that was much later. Um, yeah. So at the beginning, I mean, we just like used marijuana recreationally and we were a fan of it's like a creative powers. And, mm-hmm. you know, essentially just like, you know, thought the space was proliferating. Um, it was when Colorado just became legal. Um, my family lives like out in Colorado. So we thought maybe we could go out there and stay with them for a bit and uh, try to launch the business. Um, and, you know, essentially the, the idea is we were looking to get into marijuana, but we were looking not to get into it in terms of like, um, you know, seed to sale or any kind of development of the product. Really, we had no expertise in that. We weren't botanists or anything like that. So we didn't really know anything about that kind of the business, nor did we want to store a storefront. They're very hard to get the licenses at the time. You know, a lot of politics involved. We thought that would be risky as well. But, you know, we were just looking for opportunities in the space and studying the space for a while, you know, and getting, you know, building something that's kind of like at the infrastructure level made sense to us and was safe was something like a safe bet so something that could have like good long-term viability um you know and one of the major problems in that space you know was this whole banking problem um you know and then we also software was a little bit of our backgrounds as well as physics and math is more a quantitative side like system side of things so that's where just we were kind of thinking is what kind of systems could we maybe build for support for infrastructure for the industry and then so that was just like kind of the mindset and then we um you know essentially found this banking issue um, and essentially came down to the money can't leave the states. It can't touch Fedwire, you know, anything supported by it or SWIFT, right? A regular, like go over, therefore a normal ACH thing. And the underwriting banks, the transactions couldn't be like large banks. They would have to be kind of inside the state and housed, you know, kind of, it wouldn't have to leave, could the network, you know, the transactions couldn't leave the state essentially. So, um, so essentially, yeah, we were trying to find a solution you know, that maybe we could figure out, um, you know, and what we kind of came up with was like, okay, why don't we do some kind of wallet to wallet transfer, you know, and kind of have like an e-wallet that would then have like a feature where you, lo- where it would be loaded when you swiped essentially. So you wouldn't have to preload it or anything. Um, and then there would be a wallet to wallet transfer, be a closed system between the phone, the mobile application and the POS. So then we would sell kind of the system, like an app to the consumer or the e-wallet to the consumer that then you'd use Mm -hmm. to buy marijuana with your phone from. And then we sold like a POS to the dispensaries essentially that would then, you know, you know, they would receive the payment and be able to clear out or check out the customer. Um, And then it went over like a, you know, um, you know, a private cellular network essentially was the solution. Um, You know, we had a legal opinion written up on it uh, to review everything, you know, everything like looked good. We found some guy, thought, well, not excuse, like found a guy to say it's legal, but it was like, you know, we got someone to sign off on it, say it was legal. Um, So we were confident. Um, And then we were going to go launch the platform. We were raising money. There was a firm who was raising money that actually successfully raised money now, but at the time had in New York called Tuatara. We were going to do a deal with them. um, And then essentially, um, you know, what happened was, is we wanted one extra step of verification. We didn't really want to go to jail. Uh, so we like, you know, <laughs> figure, you know, it, it may not be worth yeah. going to, as, as a startup, you go to jail. So that's yeah, yeah, probably a good thing. Move first and ask questions later. We thought it when you're this close to the line legally, it was best to not, you maybe take the safer route. Um, so it's like, we wrote to the DOJ asking their opinion on our solution. And they were essentially like, you know, absolutely not. If you pursue this, like, we're going to like, no, just don't. So then we had to kind of take that piece of information and decide, like, did we want to move forward with the concept? 
Um, and at the end of the day, we didn't. Um, but what was very interesting about that whole uh, journey was that, you know, the underwriting bank that we brought the deal to, to do the underwriting for the e-wallet was actually, it ended up not being a cooperative, but a kind of an international bank that had a kind of some sort of presence electronically in Colorado or physically called Wirecard. Um, and yeah, it was this German company. And now what's hilarious is the CEO ended up having all these problems internationally for processing marijuana transactions. And now he's like some sort of fugitive, but it's hilarious because I'm not certain if they, if we were the ones who told them about the industry, because when we called them, when we were, working, when we were working with them, we're trying to do our infrastructure with them. They had no idea or asking many questions about the industry. It was very funny if the two are connected or he decided to move forward with the concept or his version of it when we did it. But it was like, you know, kind of, I think we ultimately dodged a bullet with that one. Because it sounds like we could have gotten into some trouble. <laughs> you may have gone down well, yeah. the, sa the same road that uh, road that got uh, the other guy. Yeah. In so it was yeah, a blessing. So. It was a blessing that uh, you were uh, yeah. that you got stopped by the DOGA before you went too far down. So so now you do that, and so you, you know, yeah. so you do that, and that is you know kind of another interesting part of your journey as you're continuing along. You know, then you know after you do that for a period of time, I think you. Um, finished up the degree or then you went or did you, did you go back to school I had or was it you know, what, uh, no what I never went back to that? school okay. yeah no I never went back to school I've just been doing odds and ends like you know it took more of an interest in like academic work um you know did some like much smaller scale startups like a coffee company that was like a nootropics company where it was like called two to one um you know it was the you know 200 milligrams of theanine 100 milligrams of caffeine cold brew in like a bioplastic bag uh, that was direct to consumer um, and then like, you know, my friend started that company kettlebell kitchen. Um, and then it, you know, a little bit later on, um, you know, it went sort of, uh, it went into bankruptcy. Eventually the debt called on it. There was a variety of reasons, bad timing could raise the money, but it was really strong business, you know, really strong, um, you know, a, you know, really good LTV CAC, like good, good metrics, also strong consumer sentiment, a good brand, like big red box. Um, you know, so essentially we went to a bankruptcy court. And we submitted a bid to buy it at all the intellectual property and the uh, trademarks and uh, the customer list and social media accounts, you know, get that all from bankruptcy. And I guess, you know, we ended up winning the bid for like 10 grand. I mean, it was formerly a hundred million dollar company. Um, and we're going to, you know, the plan is we're, we're relaunching. This happened maybe like a year ago. Um, so now we're relaunching the business or he's relaunched the business. He's running that, that business as a, um, uh, with a distributed manufacturing plan as a back end. Um, instead so a lot of you know think like territory foods back end you know now kettlebell kitchen with a brand front end um so anyway so that was so i'm kind of jumping a little bit but that was most recent thing in terms of business you know that i've done and then the coffee company as well um mm. you know uh yeah before that in the interim since uh since like spark the fall of i guess spark and lightning um i just you know mainly doing a lot of academic work you know working on some papers with you know some friends of mine or physicists and you know, at NYU and um, Grant and, um, you know, um, uh, at SUNY, sorry, I forgot the name of that, and my friend who's like a topologist and essentially just been, you know, studying, thinking, you know, working on new ideas. Um, and, you know, that's kind of during this, you know, kind of quiet period is when I thought of the, the business, you know, I'm working on now and that you're helping me with the, with the intellectual property. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and as full disclosure for listeners, uh, 
I met Ian. Uh, he we're working on uh, on the idea to, for intellectual property to protect it, and uh, so with that, make sure not to steal his idea as we talk about it a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, one yeah. of the things that I thought was interesting. So maybe just uh, clue in the audience a bit. So bringing that up to kind of where you're at today, and you know, as we chat through your journey, now you're at Arc, right? Which Arc is kind of uh, a bit of a, I would say, a futurist type of an idea where you're now going to be able to um, be able to move housing, or you know easily move housing between locations via, um, you know, almost kind of a storage container or container or compact type of a, a housing arrangement. But how did you kind of get into that idea? How is it going? Kind of where's it at? And kind of uh, give a, a, a bit of an introduction to the to the audience with uh, all of where you're at today. Yeah, sure, man. So the, yeah, ARC is essentially like um, what, what I'm looking to do is build kind of a device or a machine as an urban plan. So, you know, most devices are like the size of the iPhone or like the computer. This would be the same exact thing, just really, really big, um, you know, just, uh, you know, some kind of systems or something that's more, you know, right now, all the urban plans, you can think of kind of like flat, you know, kind of 3D static canvases. And then you make things on top of and all the different components are completely disconnected from one another, like the roads, the transit components, you know, the utilities and also the structures, the permanent structures there. Um, you know, ARC is kind of as we'll get more into would be more of a um, like a, a fungible concept where a large percentage of the urban plan would be movable. And then you'd have a, a smaller percent, which would be like a skeleton that's permanent. Um, but basically, I've always been really into architecture. I've always been really into engineering. You know, I'm not an engineer, not an architect. I just always really loved these things. And, you know, I've always, you know, even though I've loved software and love, you know, kind of formal systems and love mm -hmm. abstract things in theory, you know, I've always wanted to do something like really cool, like, you know, build like a physical product in the physical world or like a physical system, um, you know, and that's essentially where I am today. So during this period, you know, of contemplation, I sort of thought a lot about how my different interests or my strengths could really come together. Um, a lot of the, you know, through my life experiences, you know, a lot of the information I've gathered, how could it be combined in a way, you know, that maybe is a new a new concept, a new solution in the marketplace that doesn't exist, you know, what could be something, you know, again, like my mind, you know, goes towards systems, goes towards infrastructure. I want to go as like low level as possible, you know, and like the human stack of things, you know, so mm -hmm. I was just thinking of, you know, what, you know, you know, and in a physical world, and I was kind of scale agnostic, you know, so like, you know, it could be the size of a pencil or it could be, you know, the size of an urban plan or something, you know, so then, you know, I, you know, so from there, what developed is, you know, I really, found transit oriented development and I found like mobile, the mobile architecture movement. Um, and I really liked uh, both of those movements. Um, and I didn't quite understand why, like, you know, with all the containerization that's happening, which is also another movement architecture, um, like, you know, people building things like container homes or people even building container farms, product, you know, production facilities that are containerized, you know, everything mapped to the container, you know? And so I didn't quite understand why you know, that perspective wasn't combined a little bit with mobile architecture and maybe some kind of uh, transportation component. Um, because mm -hmm. if you know, like the function of containerization in the first place is, you know, you know, it improved port logistics and, you know, reduced costs for shipping and really enabled, you know, globalization in a big way. So like, you know, the current movement in architecture with containerization didn't, it, you're containerizing just for a design reason. You're not containerizing for a transportation reason, which is the point of containerization. So basically it's like, you know, you know, I thought that was like a whole, you know, yeah, so. So if I were to almost maybe summarize that or encapsulate the the idea is basically you'd almost take what would be a similar con or similar size to what would be a storage container, you know, what you'd be, you see on a train or be a cargo ship, you then use that as a, a you know, 
a done up, you'd, you'd make that into a home, a nice uh, living facility, and then you'd basically be able to move those around the country or, you know, via a uh, storage or, you know, a different location mechanisms and, and transportation, you'd be able to move. So if you were, you know, retired and you wanted to go from a cold place to, you know, you were a snowboard and you, or a snowbird and you wanted to go to a warm place, you could just simply have your home. It would, uh, you'd put it or submit it. They would move your house from Utah and Salt Lake City, which is cold to Arizona, which is warm. And you could move back and forth. Or if you're a college student and you wanted to go to a different university, you just have them simply transport your home. You could stay in it. They would transport you from one location to another and you wouldn't have to pick up all your stuff and move. Is that about right? Exactly correct. Yeah. So that's, that's like kind of the essential, the idea of ARC would be sort of the large scale, like distributed system or device that is a platform to facilitate this movement. So think you can even think about it as like a network of high base storage systems. And then what you storage retrieval systems and transfer system, I guess, between. So it's like what it is really is, you know, a, you know, these vertical frames, because we're kind of fighting urban sprawl more with the design, you know, we don't want to have all the containers spread out everywhere, like an RV park, you know, we want to have it more contained, um, have a smaller footprint um, and a bunch of other efficiencies as well. Um, and then so what it is, is basically the, the idea of ARC is these frames that then with a gantry elevator in the center that the then the containerized units then slide onto or slide under um, by like a track mover. And then essentially the gantry elevator comes down internal to the frame and picks it up and then plugs your containerized residence into a dock, which contains a solarium for a little bit more width and then a balcony, mm -hmm. essentially. And so then, yeah, and then the container would then come back down, be plugged into a well car with a track mover below it. And then that would come and cycle through the site if it wanted to go to a different frame within the same site or location, or would go down to a siding built along a railway where another gantry would lift it and move it on to a well car, different kind of well car that would then be used to transfer it to another site via like our partner rail service. Um, so essentially, yeah, to circle back and explain the idea a little bit, you know, the, the essential point of ARC would be to build these frames along rail America's rail system, which is huge. Um, you know, we have 140,000 miles of it. Um, there's a lot of, you know, a track that's being abandoned every year as these op as the big companies kind of consolidate their operations to mainly just class one style stuff where they're moving really large volumes of freight. So there's a lot of opportunity to take over abandoned track or build track extensions to work with these, uh, you know, they're the largest landholders in the United States, these, you know, five companies, BNSF, mm. Union Pacific and such. Um, so, you know, they have internal real estate development teams and economic development teams where people are usually building, you know, sidings for, let's say, like, a, you know, a mining operation to connect to a mine or some kind of refinement facility or grain or storage or transfer or things like this. You know, so we would be looking to buy land or work with these companies in kind of more remote and beautiful areas where maybe there's less rail traffic, you know, where we, we could be at first like a manifest customer, so you know, would do manifest service. Diving yeah. in just a little bit, just because without getting too much in the weeds and definitely we'll give uh, you an sure, opportunity sure. to share if people are interested, if they'd want to reach out, they want to find out more, absolutely encourage everybody to do so. But I think that kind of, you know, as we wrap towards the end of the podcast, and there's always more things we want to talk about than time to talk about them, you know, that gives everybody a bit of an introduction. I de definitely encourage everybody to reach out and find out more. So kind of with that, as we do have to wrap up, and we also just as a reminder, everybody, we have a bonus question. We'll talk just a little bit about intellectual property after the normal episode. But before that, we'll jump to the, the last two questions I always ask at the end of each podcast. So the first question I always ask is, so, you know, we just chatted all the way through your journey, including kind of what you guys are up to, or where you're at today and kind of where or where things are headed. But along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what did you learn from it? 
Um, so the worst business decision I ever made was probably, um, let me think about that, was probably to, oh, I got to give this a minute. Sorry. Um, or one of, the, one of the decisions, if you could go back that you would change or do it differently. I think, you know, maybe um, not focusing on our social network company when we were 15 as much as I should have and maybe turning more towards like trying to get into an Ivy League school or you're following a more traditional route. I mean, definitely happy, you know, since Cora was competent. Maybe I, I think I kind of bowed out too early and could have, could have tried to run that business a little harder and pressed it to be a little bigger, iterated faster and, you know, maybe pivoted and done something with it. Um, yeah, that definitely you know, sticks with me. Um, you know, the other one is maybe not asking the DOJ for permission, <laughs> you know, maybe if we worked with a cooperative or free to get something out or just move forward with a slightly modified solution, giving that a little extra thought, you know, maybe we could have done something there. Um, yeah, essentially that's those two. And, and, or you may have been in jail had you not asked the DOJ. So it right, would have right. been one of those that we don't know what would have happened. It would be interesting if we could have gone back and uh, played it out, how it would have ended up uh, taking place. So definitely, uh, but I think that that's, uh, you know, a, an issue where every startup, every uh, inventor, every entrepreneur kind of hits that, hey, is this a good idea? Should I keep pushing on it? Is it one where should I, I should uh, let it go or pivot or go in a different direction? And it's always one where, you know, it's much easier to hindsight 2020 to say, oh, I wish I would have gone a different direction. But at the time, you'd make the best, you know, best decision you can with the, you know, with the information you have on hand. So I definitely think that's something to learn from. So second question I'll ask, which is now if you're talking to somebody that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what'd be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Um, do all of your research upfront. Like, you know, do, I mean, you can't do all your research over. You're always learning new things every single day, but like do your homework, you know, don't, no ideas had in a vacuum. You know, if you have an idea, make sure you look at the lay of the land, look at all the competition that exists out there, see, you know, make a spreadsheet even, or just, you know, a nice, we'll get out your whiteboard and look at how all the ways in which your business is, is different from their businesses. And then use those, that difference um at the end to really like you know shine you know or mm. design a marketing strategy around or design you know help evolve or iterate your product to maybe add more differentiators or double down on those differences no and i like that because i think you know sometimes especially as an entrepreneur you tend to want to dive in you want to get going it's a, a you know it's almost that new shiny object you're excited about it there you can see a yeah. lot of opportunity and yet sometimes because you get so excited about it you talk yourself into the idea you never actually do that kind of that due diligence, you never check and see, you know, have you done your homework? Have you figured out, is it a viable option? Is it something people want to pay for? Are there competitors? What can you charge for this? You know, what is it going to take to start it up and doing it? And, you know, and how are you going to make it? How are you going to or follow through with it? All of those things are things that you should be considering as you get going. And it doesn't mean you can get or keep the idea going, but do that homework as you're getting going so that you can know that, what that roadmap is, what that strategy is. And uh, before you dive in and and uh, get too far into it. So I think that's a great piece of advice. Well, before we dive into the bonus question, if people are just listening to the normal episode and aren't interested in intellectual property, which I totally understand, but if they want to reach out to you, they want to find out more about, you know, your business, about what you guys are doing with ARC, they want to be a, a customer, a client, a investor, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out and find out more? I uh, just email my personal email, iha94 at icloud.com. And I'll answer any and all questions. 
All right. Well, I definitely encourage everybody to reach out and find out more and get or, or get connected. Well, as we wrap up with the normal part of the episode, thank you again for coming on. It's been a fun. It's been a pleasure. Now, for all of you that are listeners, if you have your own journey to tell and you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, just go to inventiveguest.com and apply to be on the show. We'd love to hear your journey. Two more things as a listener. One, uh, make sure to click subscribe in your podcast player so you know when all of our awesome episodes come out. And two, leave us a review so everybody else can find out about all of our awesome episodes. Last but not least, if you ever need help with patents, trademarks, or anything else, feel free to reach out to us. Just go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat. So now as we've wrapped up with the normal portion of the episode, we always have the bonus. Uh, we have the bonus portion uh, where we get to talk about one of my favorite pro- or, or topics, which is intellectual property. So with that, I'll uh, fl- or switch gears and we'll turn it over to you to ask your number one intellectual property question. Yeah. Uh, how often do you guys run into issues with uh, the greater international patent, uh, you know, kind of market than, you know, you know, for companies that want to be like, not just the United States, but for all over, I know that's a different search process. It's more expensive, obviously. It's more in depth, uh, a lot more data to sift through. Um, how often or what percent of time do you end up, you know, you file something in the U.S. and then a company wants to go international, do those companies end up wanting, running into trouble? You know, or is that, you know, less frequent than um, like, you know, than you'd expect, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one, you know, it's kind of the old attorney's answer of, you know, every time you ask an attorney for an answer, they always say it depends, but it is one that it depends. But I'll give you a little bit of an insight. You know, every company is a bit different in the sense that some comp- some companies, you know, depending on their industry, depending on what they're doing and everything else, they are... Um, their market is really going to be in one given country or, you know, so give you an example, having, have a client that's in the medical device industry and they look at it and say, okay, by far, you know, hands down the most, the most money that's been spent in the medical industry is done in the U S that's where most, or where the most of the money is, where all the research and development is, where a lot of money is spent on healthcare industry in general. And so they're saying, okay, our really our target market is going to be in the U S that's where most of our clients are. That's where we can make the biggest splash and the best return. And so they focus their intellectual property portfolio on the U S on the other hand, we have another client and, you know, that's in a different industry and theirs is much more of a split. They say, hey, you know, about 50% of our market is going to be in the U.S., 50% is going to be in Europe. We need to have coverage on both. And so then they end up going down that path because that's where they're going to be. So really, when you're looking at, you know, how are you go- how to tackle international markets and whether or not it's important, whether or not you have issues, I would look at and see where is your marketplace going to be? Where are you going to make an entrance? Where are you going to try and sell? And then based on that, you choose where your biggest part or portions of the market is where the highest likelihood is of your clientele to be and that's where you focus in your intellectual property so sir for some people is one country is one location for some it splits into multiple and it's really more of a matter of what is a business where your clients are and what is where do you want to have the the greatest amount of protection cool thanks man appreciate it so with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up the podcast and great question. And if you or anybody in the audience ever has any other questions, always feel free to go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat. We'll be happy to answer any questions you might have. And with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up the podcast. It's been as fun. It's been a pleasure, Ian, and wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. It was fun chatting. 